This is the Ask a Vet podcast series from Solar Power World. Welcome to another edition of Ask a Vet. I'm Kathy Zip, Senior Editor of Solar Power World. So I'm really excited about this month's veteran because we've interviewed installers, manufacturers, marketers, and industry groups. But Paula Mintz is our first representative from a market research perspective. And Paula is the founder of global market research firm SPV Market Research, which helps some clients like BP Solar, Enril, DuPont, some of the big guys, but her analyst work goes back much further. And so we're excited to have you here today, Paula. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Kathy. I was really, really pleased to be asked. A market researcher is a real research discipline, and you're you're stuck with your research all the time. And though I love it, you don't often get a chance to bore people with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very important work, and here will be your chance to, I'm sure, not bore our audience. I have some really interesting points I want to hear from you. So I always like to kind of just go back and see how people kind of came into the market. So I saw that you have your MBA in market research from San Jose State University, um, but did your undergrad relate to market research as well? I started out as a literature major um, and just a little offside funny story. When I told my father I was going to major in literature, he sent me to a medical assisting school, a six-week course. Oh, no. You actually took the whole course? I, I, I took the whole course. I blew up a centrifuge. The thing they write at the end was, she'll have to be watched. So then I entered college as a literature major and switched to business because, I mean, my entire life, my first goal as a kid was to know everything. And when you write, as I'm sure you know, you are always researching. So it just sort of graduated to business. And then I moved on to my MBA and really loved the research side. So I took market research based courses. I took statistics based courses. I love the history of business. And it all sort of married itself so that, you know, I don't know everything, but I know a lot about one thing and one thing only. The other thing I wanted to do when I was a kid was write. So I do that all the time. So I write, I analyze it. It sort of just mutated. I feel like that's that's how careers go. Um, I talked to a lot of people who went from one thing and kind of morphed into another. And it's just interesting how a skill set can kind of lead you into an area maybe you never anticipated before. And so looking at your LinkedIn experience, you have been doing solar specific research since the late 90s and when you started as director of PV market research at Strategies Unlimited. But I'm guessing you had some experience after college to kind of get into that director position. So can you kind of take me through what you did after you graduated? I worked in software for a while for a friend of mine. Actually, I worked at three of his companies in a row. And though my I was in the uh, analyst group at his small software startups, they were startups. So you did everything, including in those days, driving the disk to the to FedEx so you could count it as shipped or sold. Then I really wanted to focus on market research. And I was disappointed that I wasn't doing that. So a friend of mine introduced me to Bob Johnson at Strategies, which is the database I have dates back to 1974. All the data, the consistent methodology goes back to there. So Bob hired me and just essentially two years of an apprenticeship that was grueling, but he's still one of my dear friends and he's still a mentor. And the database, you know, honestly, the price cost curve that everybody refers to often incorrectly in the industry started with Bob. Strategies was the first solar market research firm in the solar industry. So I owe him a great deal. 
By the way, when I started, I only wanted to work in market research. I never assumed I would stay in solar. I could not pronounce photovoltaic. So <laughs> about six months in, I fell in love with the industry and the technologies and various other aspects of it. It's a fascinating industry to study. But also, if you think about how profoundly we can change people's lives, this industry is, is an amazing thing to wake up to every day. And then when he retired, I became the director of the department. Navigant recruited me in 2005. And my goal was always to start my own practice, which I did in 2012 and which I could do because when I was recruited by Navigant, I kept all of my IP, that is the databases, by contract. That's wonderful. I, I was going to kind of ask, you know, why you love it, because it's neat that you say that it, it is always changing and that you can actually affect people's lives. Well, what I fell in love with was honestly solar in the developing world and what that can do to profoundly change lives. And as I've watched my career unfold and climate change continue to be denied. And so every day I wake up to an industry that, yeah, is a business. We do have need to have better margins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I know it's it is changing the world. It's just not doing it as rapidly as we might like to think. And my role in it is to set a close to accurate baseline so that no matter what announcements are out there, you can come back and say, okay, here's some credibility. I'm not saying others aren't credible, but I can say that my methodology is the consistent methodology Bob practiced in 1974. And that's what you look for in market research, by the way, that the research in the experiment is set up consistently over time, look at the methodology. So I know that I am doing good. And it's given me so much. I mean, I've, I've had chapters published. I'm on an EU committee. I'm still the only American on this EU committee. It's amazing the things I've had an opportunity to do. And I owe that all to Bob and to solar. I've heard a lot of people kind of say that, like, I can't believe where solar has taken me. You worked at uh, strategies for a while, and then you worked at Navigant, and then started your own business. How did that kind of lead you to what you wanted to focus on specifically within the solar industry? Well, I'm a classic market researcher. So my focus is on specifically PV, but I also pour CPV and also CSP, you know, anything that touches the solar industry, but focused on the photovoltaic side of it. As a market researcher, I know that you cannot isolate one part of an industry. I know there are other firms that do that, but truthfully, you if you isolate, you miss. So my work starts with the raw materials, equipment aside for a minute. So it's consumables, it's polysilicon, it's wafers, cells, modules, through to the systems and all the applications and to the end user, including some end user research. And it's global practice. If you step out and you say, okay, I'm only going to look at the U.S., you forget you can't really analyze just the U.S. without looking at the global industry. You can't really analyze the demand side. So my specialty is the photovoltaic industry, the solar industry in general. Real market research does that. So tell me a little bit about a day in the life of a market researcher or analyst. Cut back on speaking quite a bit last year because I came to the conclusion that the more you stand up on a stage, the more you're listening to your own voice, and researchers shouldn't be doing that. I will speak more this year if I get the opportunity, and I'll choose very carefully. At Navigant, there was a time when I spoke 60 times in one year, and you're just you're just listening to the sound of your own voice again and again and again. It's not what research is about. And research is not anecdotal. So every single day, some part of my day is primary research, reaching out to manufacturers, 
And since the research is tops down, bottoms up, what did you sell it for? What did you buy it for? Kind of thing. So every part part of my day includes some research and then some analysis and then some writing, often interrupted by phone calls. Well, that's something we all experience. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of have, have touched on this, but what makes for a good market researcher? I kind of you know picture someone that has a lot of patience and attention to detail, and then maybe someone also that's willing to stick their neck out and say, hey, this is what I see happening, even if it's not received well. Curiosity, persistence, attention to detail, a love of what you're doing. I at strategies would, and even when I hired people at Navigant, they would think that it was some exciting thing that meant you stood up on a stage and talked to people and they listened. And then when they really find out that it's sitting in a room somewhere, just like writing, you know, you sit in a room somewhere, you gather the data, you have to ask people 12 times to give you an answer. You, it's a research discipline. You set up the experiment. You have to love that attention. Not as it, it's not just attention to detail. It's an investigation. You love the investigative part of it. So that goes with curiosity. If you're someone who is satisfied when they get a few answers, you're probably not going to be a very good market researcher. If you're someone who doesn't know the difference between me saying to you, for example, Kathy, what do you think of? Or Kathy, what did you pay for? How much did you buy? You're probably not going to be a very good market researcher. If you're someone that is happier with the announcements and standing on stage, I'll be candid with you. I don't think you're going to be a very good market researcher if your whole goal is to have people quote you. So focus and honestly, the ability to work alone a lot and to love it. And it does take a little bit of courage to stand up on a stage and tell everybody that that essentially this is what the facts are saying <laughs> and to have them not want to hear those facts. I mean, I've been heckled. You have to be firmly focused on the first rule of market research, which is to eliminate or negate your own bias so that you can provide an analysis that actually does some good, honestly. And, and what does good are facts and the appropriate interpretation of those facts without bias. I'm wondering what led you to want to found your own research firm, and then how is the work that you do or maybe the way that you go about your research different from other firms out there? Well, I can't really comment on other firms, even though I might know, and that's because Bob drilled it into me, pounded it into me, that it's unprofessional, and as old-fashioned as that is, uh, I just can't. So I can talk about myself. I absolutely believe that I'm doing something different than the other firms out there. I wanted to found my own business the day Bob retired and before I even left strategies, but I knew I needed a bigger platform. I believe very strongly in what I've been saying, and I believe really strongly that good research, which is as journalism, a slow, methodical process, it has to be done right. And so that's not a great fit with the management consulting firm and Navigant treated me very well. I, I knew I was going to leave eventually. I knew I was going to found my own business where I would make far less money, but could always be true to my principles. I think that's wonderful. Um, it really speaks for the quality of your work. Um, and my desire to be poor, yes. <laughs> <laughs> poor but happy sometimes can be a good combination. <laughs> poor but often happy, not all the time, right? Yeah, rich and unhappy. <laughs> I'm so fascinated by where you're getting all this data and all the data that you have to look at. It's really crazy. So you said you have a kind of database um, of research that goes back to when you worked with Bob. 
And then you're also getting information from manufacturers. Can you talk about that process? Are you just reaching out and being like, hey, can you tell me some information? Do people give it up willingly? How, how do you get all that data? It's asking questions the right way. And you know that as a journalist, you you ask a question the right way, you will get answers that will inform you. So it's really not that hard. Everybody, I get asked a lot, how do you do all this? It's a global practice. So the research, the databases, the research instruments, the surveys have been set up since, you know, 1974. So, you know, it's not that hard. It is time-consuming, but not overwhelmingly slow. And one of the reasons I wanted to found my own practice is so that I can say no to stuff that interferes. I don't always do that, and I always regret it when I do say yes to something that interferes. It's a little machine that keeps rolling along. I don't know how else to explain it. You reach out to the supply side. You reach out to the, the, the demand side. You ask each a separate set of questions, and the goal is to arrive at a full story of the industry. That is some part of every day of my life including some weekends. On the manufacturing side, you try to get more than one contact within each company. On the demand side, you're reaching to a bigger audience, a bigger group, and you're just trying to arrive at what represents the average between and, and factor out all the noise. I've noticed one mistake people make is that they don't give themselves room to, to reset if there's something wrong. So if you can notice outliers in the data. If you start noticing a lot of outliers in the data, uh, candidly, something's wrong with your experiment, either when it's set up, et cetera. So new research I'm done, for example, a big consumer study I did, end users, residential users in the U.S. in 2014. Every researcher starts out knowing they maybe have to reset and go back to square one and adjust the survey instrument. Um, finding the right population, getting the right questions asked, knowing that you have to have data. You can't just say, gee, what do you think the price is? It has to be, what did you pay? I noticed that when I see research go wrong, it's because they're asking for anecdotal information because they want a headline or something, or they're not giving themselves permission to reset when an outlier in the data tells them there's something amiss. There's nothing really unexpected because you're not expecting anything. And if you are expecting something, you have a bias. And that's what I've seen go wrong with a lot of research, by the way, is that the expectation is the prices are really, really going to be low, 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 but they're not taking in other pieces information so they can see the margins are unsustainable. So they just keep projecting forth from an unsustainable point, you know, down, 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 down. I have confidence in my analyses, but it's not a belief system. I think some of the things that you're touching on are really important just for people to maybe know if the research they're reading is quality or not. There, there, maybe there's some warning signs in there. The other thing you're doing as a, research, a market researcher and an analyst is you're trying to uh, eliminate or at least ameliorate the bias of your audience. And that is not, sometimes not possible. So it's not, you know, I'm not going to comment on the quality of other, other research. There are warning signs that are pretty clear. But one of them is wanting to be quoted so much. I mean, so I will on occasion talk to reporters now, but I've been misquoted a lot. If you believe something, you're going to seek out information that confirms what you believe. You're going to ignore everything that doesn't. And that's confirmation bias. It can be very hard to break through that. 
that I continue to do my work. I focus on my work. I know it's out there. I know people can see this and have some baseline that may make them think about what they believe. And if I've done that, then I've succeeded. So I did want to ask some questions related to your areas of expertise. The solar power world, you know, we're really focused on the U.S. solar contractors. But I feel like it's still important to know what um, industries in other countries are doing so that maybe we can learn from that. Well, quite frankly, many other markets have learned from the U.S. The U.S. is one of the pioneers. We shouldn't forget that. The world took a look at Europe and the feed-in tariffs and then instituted, often cases poorly, feed-in tariff-type models that crashed and burned. The U.S. actually didn't do that. The U.S. has renewable portfolio standards that other countries could learn from. Australia has instituted a standard that is somewhat like the FERC rule that didn't make it through, you know, price resiliency rule that, that really favors coal. So we don't want to learn from them. Their electricity rates are through the roof. And so that has encouraged the storage aspect of solar, particularly for residential. I think we all learn from each other what's working, what's not. Right now with the EU committee I'm on, I've encouraged them, even though it really isn't off and running yet, and who knows what will happen. And I've written kind of a, a sort of a watch out for this one. It may not be exactly designed well stuff about the Hawaii storage, you know, residential storage how do you encourage the adoption of solar? Uh, virtual net metering, that's really a U.S. thing. Um, so it's not what we can learn from them. It's what we can all learn from each other in this huge solar experiment. We can learn a lot all over the world. We're Now, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, in Vermont, there's a utility that's now doing sort of off-grid systems in remote for remote houses, which is great. But the developing world has been doing that for decades, right? So now it's the, the microgrid concept is decades and decades old, and we all talk like we've reinvented the wheel, right? So the point is we all learn from each other. We take, we refine, we, and we move forward. It's actually a really awesome point. Given your analysis of supply and demand and your focus on the global market, what are some of your thoughts on the tariff and how that could affect the U.S. and even other countries involved? Like any good journalist and analyst, the future hasn't happened. The last time there were tariffs, essentially, the Chinese just absorbed them for larger buyers. And there was a bump in price for the smaller guys if you just want to look at the U.S. And this time, it's too early to tell. I know that Jinko has sort of reannounced it's sort of new facility in Florida, and it got shoved through the approval process fairly quickly. We'll see what happens there. Jinko has to be absolutely sure the U.S. market is going to stay strong, and we are an ITC-driven market. This is a tax equity market. We don't know what can happen here. Government giveth, the government taketh away. And we don't have a favorable administration to solar and renewables. So, Almost bigger than that is the proposed 70 plus cuts to clean energy research, which will affect everything. And uh, quite candidly, doesn't make any sense when you say, OK, we the tariffs because we want manufacturing in the U.S., but we're going to cut funding for clean energy. So new manufacturers, startups can't get funded. That makes sense? No. So it's too early to tell. A lot of people are making a lot of conjecture right now. So there will be a bump in prices, but there was already a bump in prices. And Kathy, quite frankly, module prices had to come up. Margins are too low. So there will be a bump in prices, particularly for the small guys. There's not enough module assembly in the U.S. to support the 2.5 gigawatts of cells that can come in. 
very interesting on the face of it. You have Jinko making a U.S. bet, we'll see. You have Longig making an India bet, we'll see. Will it build up U.S. manufacturing at this point? My my considered opinion would be highly doubtful. I mean, if it's only 2.5 gigawatts of cells that can come into the U.S. without tariff, you know, how much are you going to build up the module assembly side? If you're going to encourage manufacturing, then you need other incentives um, as the state of Florida or Jacksonville, Florida, are trying to provide apparently. And then you still got pilot scale, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I know in Asia, plants pop up almost overnight and start producing cells and modules, but they're leapfrogging right over pilot scale production, which is a repeatability that you need to keep manufacturing on pilot scale until you have an average that is sustainable right? You want to keep your tolerances nice and tight. So the U.S. has different standards. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens here. So just looking back over your decades of covering the solar industry and researching it, again, other people analyzing the market, but I'm just wondering if there's things that you've seen, conclusions you can draw that maybe we don't always hear about or focus on. Well, I can say that it keeps growing despite deadly margins. Looking back at, at this point, four decades of trends, I would say that uh, we're not out of the need government support and that it grows where there is either a mandate, an incentive or a subsidy for it. And in places where there are not those three things, whether or not people care to deny it, and they do because no one wants to think that, it doesn't grow. I would say that over these four decades, despite the fact that all energy, all energy is subsidized at some point, we are not alone in this. We're the ones who are have consistently over four decades been tasked with saying, yes, yeah, someday we won't need you. And that's not fair. But then again, as um as they said on The Good Place, that's probably which show I just love. I like that too. Some word like staycation, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, so there's that. We we continue to need the industry support, the, the incentives, the mandates, the subsidies. When they're badly done, they kill the market. We continue over time to be chasing some low price point that has nothing to do with cost and misunderstands cost because your cost of manufacturing is made up of a whole bunch of prices for inputs, right? Downtime, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, over these four decades, the 20 I've been responsible for and the 20 before me for this practice, we consistently misunderstand the price function. We consistently set goals that are arbitrary and artificial and actually harm us. We consistently argue that we're going to be almost free without incentives and subsidies, despite the fact that all energy is subsidized. I remember all the oil executives sitting in front of Congress saying, don't take our subsidies away, we can't produce. So it ain't just us. So I, I would say that on the upside, it's the optimism that I love. The reason I serve small clients, even though sometimes I think that they're um, maybe slightly diluted in my is even when I am telling them things they don't want to hear and why I consistently do it and why I stay in business is I love the optimism, the goal that even though you're running a business, you know you're doing something that's right for the world. So that 
believe it or not, is important and it keeps our industry running. And over four decades of this practice, again, the 20 I've been responsible for, that's never changed. This belief that they're doing the right thing is one of the things that gets me up in the morning. Right. Utilities and businesses really believe in solar and does see it as a profitable industry, regardless of what the government says. Moving away from solar, you know, I, I always like to get to know something else personal or non-solar related about the person I'm interviewing. So I did some research and, and I love seeing that some of your non-solar work involves focusing on women who may be struggling. I think it's really interesting. You've published a book, Legacy of Courage, that kind of yep. touches on homelessness and mental illness. And you are interested in doing some work with women emerging from prison. So tell me about this work and why that, that is important to you as well. To talk about the book, the book was about uh, my mother, a uh, homeless schizophrenic who was murdered. So I grew up with a mentally ill mother. And my niece completely collapsed after my brother's death and was convicted of second degree murder and is now in prison. I've always wanted to do something for women emerging from shelters. I've been an abused woman hiding from somebody. So that's important to me. And women emerging from prison who could do so much in our industry. And the perfect place for them is on the installation side of the business. So one of the things I really want to do, try to see if I can develop an installer network that would be willing to start a program to give these women internships, to bring them back into society, into this amazing business. It may make you uncomfortable, but these women need us. We are the perfect industry for this workforce. So that's really important to me. I think that's such a great idea, fighting for women in solar. It's been so great speaking with you, Paul. I really appreciate your time. Ditto. I really enjoyed our conversation. This has been another edition of Ask a Bet. Join us each month as I, SPW editor Kathy Zip, bringing you the unique perspectives and insights of those who have spent a decade or more in solar. Thanks for listening to the Solar Power World podcast. Join us online for more podcasts, videos, and great editorial content at solarpowerworldonline.com. And don't forget to share your thoughts on social media. Catch you next month.